as we said, we only have a few more meetings left this year. And as a result, uh, by nature of the beast, we are nearing also the end of the book of Romans, which we've been going through for 24 weeks now. And in this concluding kind of three passages in Romans, Paul's buttoning up this book. And really this book has been two parts. The first 11 chapters of Romans are theological explanation. Paul's really unpacking the theology of the gospel. Um, But then in chapters 12 through 16, Paul begins to apply that theology. Why does, how does the gospel shape our life? Why is it important to not only believe in some vague idea of God or to know who Jesus is or to know that there was a cross? Why is it important to really understand the details of it? And it's needed because, let's face it, we live in a culture right now um, in America, which is something America has never experienced before. Now, I want to say we shouldn't be so arrogant as to think this has never happened before because it's happened in lots of places before, throughout the ages, in all sorts of different countries. But in America, really for the first time, we have these two ideologies which are coexistent and their relationship is really interesting. On the one hand, we still have this pervasive cultural nominal Christianity. And I had thought actually that as a culture we'd gotten past this and being in church you always joke about people coming on Easter. We call them CEOs, Christmas and Easter only. Um, And I, I really, people were talking to me this Easter like, do you expect a bunch of new people to come to your church? I'm like, no, I really don't. We're so, we're so post-Christian that I really don't expect it. And yet I was amazed at how many people I've never seen before came to church on Easter three weeks ago, and I have not seen them again since. And so there's still this culture, whether it's tied to just the American tradition or the founding of our country, that people still have a basic understanding of Christianity, an awareness of it, maybe even an identity with it because I'm American, um, because I'm middle class, because I'm from Montana, I don't know. I'm Christian, and they identify with that. And comes with, uh, coming with that is also this idea of perceived Christian morals and this, I ought to go to church at some point. Even if it's just Christmas and Easter, I should go to church. I was talking with one of my friends who works uh, as a loan officer in a bank, and he was talking to some of his coworkers. And Easter weekend, he was like, hey, guys, what are you doing this weekend? They're like, well, of course I'm going to church. <laughs> It's like, you've never gone to church. Like, I know, but it's Easter. So there's still this obligation of nominal Christianity that exists in America. But then next to it, we have this progressively anti-religious movement calling for kind of a solidarity of thought and belief, kind of this anti-religion movement. Um, You're not allowed to impose anything on anyone. Everyone must believe the same thing, which are two oxymorons. Um, But the weird thing is, is when those two come together, there should be this butting of heads. There should be this irritant between the two. But increasingly, the interesting thing that's happening is rather than being repulsed by each other, they're actually joining together. And nominal Christianity is actually reshaping itself to look exactly like culture. Instead of just leaving the word Christian behind and saying, we're not Christian anymore, they're trying to redefine what the word Christian means. They're trying to re-explain what Christians believe. And there are all sorts of evangelical leaders, and I did do this on purpose because they're not evangelical leaders, um, saying that we not only need to change what we believe, but we need to change how we act. And the interesting thing is, is that by changing how Christians believe things and how Christians obey the Bible, it implicitly changes how we act. 
We all act out of fundamental beliefs at some level. You are sitting because you believe that chair will hold, will hold you up. It's an assumed belief, but it's a belief that shapes your action nonetheless. And so this is where this problem comes in. As we're living in this culture with this weird marriage happening between secular culture and nominal Christianity, you are being asked a thousand times a day what shapes you. Why are you living the way you're living? Why are you thinking Christianly? Why are you acting Christianly? And what compels you to do so? Why does what you believe shape your life? Why should you even be concerned about how you act or how you think? Why is this important? Shouldn't Christianity really just be about personal belief and feeling good about yourself? I believe there's a God. I know there's a God. That's good. Shouldn't Christianity just be about loving other people? I'm a good person. I'm a giving person. I'm a great person, in the words of Donald Trump. Shouldn't Christianity just be about the realization that there is a God? And in f the face of all of these questions, which have to be weighed, I want you right now to think, why is it that you are compelled to believe in the gospel? Why is it that you're compelled to not believe in the gospel? Why is it that you feel like you need to live your life in any sort of specific or consistent way? Why do you feel that? Why do you feel like there is a right way of living Christianly? There is always guiding things and things which frame our thoughts. And all Paul's going to do today is he's going to help us see what those should be for the Christian. What's guiding you? And this is important because Paul's really concluding one of the more practical components of his book. And he's going to outline for us, in light of all these commands, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, he's going to tell us why we should think differently, why we should act differently. And tonight we're going to see that a Christian life is theological, practical, and hopeful. Theological has to do with God, practical it exists uh, in, in application, and it's hopeful. And that's because biblical Christianity most glorifies God, most benefits humanity, and most changes you. So here's the answer to the sermon, okay? If you want to walk away with this, it's this. Why do we care about belief and action as Christians? Because we care about others, because we care about ourselves, and because we care about God. So that's what Paul's going to show us today. So let's pray, and we're going to dive in. Lord, we thank you for your word in Romans. Um, we pray that we are compelled by the same picture of Christ that compelled Paul to endure uh, hardships and weakness and insults and persecutions and calamities. For when he is weak, then he is strong. And for the sake of Christ, he is content with such things. We pray, Lord, that in our own way as we face uh, hardships with the gospel. We face some opposition in even articulating the gospel, whether it's just in awkward conversations with people or in people who would respond um, with more hostility towards the gospel. Lord, we pray that we have a, uh, a motivation which pushes us to endure despite that. I pray that you bring us uh, not just actions for the sake of actions, but actions for the sake of of belief and glory and honor and praise. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, the last time, two weeks ago, hopefully you guys were able to retain things even through your spring break because you have finals coming up. So if you forgot everything before spring break, 
you're screwed. Um, but if you remember back to our last time we met, Paul was talking to us about how we live with other Christians. And he's saying, welcome the weirdos. Welcome people who are different than you, weaker than you, and disciple them. Live with them. Cooperate with them. And this is what he concluded with in, first, or in Romans 15, 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Okay, now this is a really important verse here because right away, Paul is telling us to do something. He's shaping our actions, welcome them because of the glory of God. So Paul is immediately framing all of our actions with the glory of God. Why do we act the way we act? Because the glory of God is important. And the glory of God is something we hear a lot, right? We've heard this phrase, glory of God, but what does glory actually mean? What are we talking about when we say the glory of God? Well, if you look at a dictionary, glory means brightness, splendor, or magnificence. And so we could all envision that. Um, one of the words that used was luster. Uh, no one uses that anymore. It's a weird sounding word, luster. But it talks about luster and brightness. And the thing about glory, when you stop and think about it, it has to be experienced, right? Think about Think about the sun's brightness, okay? Now imagine you just have this National Geographic in front of you with a picture of the sun. How many of you look at that sun and you're like, that is a bright sun? Because really when it comes down to it, this is something I'm always amazed at, is the brightest object we know of with our eyes is just white ink on paper. <laughs> That's what it gets boiled down to. The, the best way we as humans have to capture the sun is white. That's as bright as it gets. And yet when we, that's one way of experiencing the sun. But when you see a picture of it, you're not in awe of it. You're not really responding to it. But imagine now being out in the middle of the oval and looking up at the sun at noon and having your eyes kind of have to squint to even look at it and feeling your scleras like start to burn and your eyes start to water. And you, you not only feel it and you see your, see your eyes responding, but you feel its warmth. You see, to experience that gives you a greater view of the magnificence of the sun. My wife and I recently watched uh, this movie called Meru. Has anyone seen it? It's a climbing documentary. It's on Amazon Prime, if you have Amazon Prime. Um, and I'm terrified of heights. And we're watching this movie, and they're climbing this just slab of granite in India. Uh, and they're thousands of feet up in the air. And they're living in, what are the things... They, the, they, that they live on, on the mountain, the technical term for it. It's like a, a tent on the mountain. Anyway, it's a tent on the side of a stinking cliff. And so they're hanging in these things, and I'm watching it, and I'm just like, I'm nervous, I'm anxious, I'm like sweating on the couch. I'm terrified watching this movie. And yet... What's causing me to have this feeling of splendor towards this? Because really that's what it is. I'm in awe of this majestic rock that they are sitting on supported by a cord and a heavy-duty paperclip. And, and I'm terrified of it. But what's driving that, 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 that emotion? Well, it's my perceived experience of it, right? I can only imagine what those guys are actually experiencing and how I see, think that they're experiencing it allows me to just understand a little bit of its glory. But how much more did those climbers experience the magnificence of that sunrise and that height 
than I would ever experience in high definition. The same is true with the glory of God. In order to really know and understand the glory of God, which we see as the driving force for our actions, we have to experience God's glory. It can't just be a Christian catchphrase. So the question then is, where do we experience the glory of God? Where in our lives, through our means and our faculties, where can we experience the glory of God? Because here's the thing, the culture wants you to respond to glory, but it wants you to respond to the glory of man. Look at how magnificent man's shame is. Don't be in a position where man should shame you. Look at the radiance of man's acceptance. Strive for its acceptance. It's a call for us to experience man's shame and man's desire and let, let that perceived experience shape your actions, your dreams, and your desires. And if our actions are truly to be shaped by God and not culture, that means that your experience with God must be greater than your experience with culture. You must have a different interaction and view of God than you do of culture. Paul helps us find then where we experience this in Romans 15 verses 8 through 9. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's faithfulness or trustfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So where do we find the glory of God? What must be the first thing for you? If someone says, show me the glory of God, where can I experience the glory of God? The first thing you must experience to respond in terms of a Christian life. This is our first point tonight. What shapes the Christian life, firstly, is the glory of God in salvation. We experience God first and foremost not in the mountains of Montana, not in music, not in meditation. The first and most important place you as a Christian experience the glory of God is in your own personal salvation through Jesus Christ. The glory Paul talks about in verse seven, or in verse seven is tied to the gospel Paul proclaims in verse eight. And here he's talking about this gospel. He says Christ came as the truth and faithfulness of God. Christ came to, to show the faithfulness of God in saving his people. What Paul's writing about here, he says, to the circumcised. That's because thousands of years before Paul wrote this, God made a promise to a dude named Abraham in Genesis 12. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a nation. You are going to be my people. And you will live with me forever. And we're going to have a great life. And, and the sign of belonging to God at that time was circumcision. And, and what happened is when God made that promise in Genesis 12 of saving, restoring, and entering into relationship with man, everything from that point forward in human history, and I mean everything, pointed towards the cross. From Genesis 12, the scope of human history led us to the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is a really cool thing to just consider on just even a secular level, right? Everyone loves a good story. We love writers and directors who are able to draw for us like compelling portraits of drama and redemption or driving plot. And that's why, who, Johnny, what's the current rating of Rotten Tomatoes for Batman vs. Superman? Is it 
28%, which is up from like 12 when we looked at it before, right? So 28%. I mean, you have Batman and Superman. It's hard to improve on the characters here, but the reason why no one's going to see it or those who are are disappointed is because it doesn't have a good story. It's just this... This, it's using characters to prop up a plot instead of creating this great narrative which draws us in and leads us to really have this affection for the story. It's not quality. But then you think of writers like Tolkien or Lewis or directors like Christopher Nolan or Steven Spielberg or even just great classic stories like Casablanca. And yet all of these creators, all of these writers, all of these directors, they created these compelling portraits, but they weren't real, okay? As dramatic and as beautiful as it was when Gollum, the one obsessed with the ring, harms and bites off Frodo's finger and falls into Mount Doom, destroying the ring, while all of the strands of that book are tied together so beautifully, Tolkien ended a story. He didn't start history. But God is so much more different because God is the story writer's mind that Tolkien and Lewis could only imagine. But he's also the creator and sovereign God, which no human authority could ever scratch at. Which means his words, his plot, his stories, his goals, they're not just ideas, they're not just characters, but it's the reality. That means when God, if we look at Ephesians 1, he says, before the foundations of the world, he chose us in Jesus Christ. That means that before the foundations of the world, God set out to do what no movie script could ever do. God set out to create such a compelling picture that all other pictures, all other plots, all other stories, all other dramas would only hope to grasp at. And part of that's due to God's sovereign power as Lord over history, but part of that is also due to the plot he was working with. All of us had a greater problem than any of the books or movies we've ever watched or read. Because we weren't stuck on the fringe of the Dark Lord's power. We weren't lost in the White Witch's Narnia, not stuck in Nolan's limbo, not dwelling in Amongert's concentration camp, not living in Bogart's contested Casablanca. We were dead in a grave. We were born sinners. We were born without a pulse and instead born with a chain, rejecting God and bearing only his punishment. We had no luster. We had no brightness. We had no splendor. We had no magnificence. We had no glory. We were just dustings of decay. The moment you were born, not praising God, you weren't born into life. You were born into damnation. You were born into God's wrath for refusing to acknowledge God as the one who created you. And that was your predicament. The depth that Steven Spielberg went to, even using black and white film to portray, and, and just raw nudity to portray the depth of depravity in the Nazi concentration camps, cannot grasp the gravity of your position without God. But God acted. God sent Jesus to show his faithfulness to save those whom he promised to save. You see, even where um, 
Schindler was a reluctant hero. Kind of, he just happened to be in the middle of this and he responded reluctantly and slowly. Jesus responded not out of reluctant passivity, but out of a foreplanned promise. But more than responding to those who are promised, Jesus did even more because he extended mercy to those who had no promise. You see, when Jesus came to the earth and died for the sins of man, he did more than just save the Jews. He would have been truthful. He would have been faithful. He would have been just. He would have been trustworthy to simply come back and save those whom he had made a a, a promise to, this ethnic people of Israel. But instead, he chose to save them and then through Jesus extend his kingdom mercy to anyone who would believe in him. You see, God did more than just fulfill his plot. He exceeded his plot. The salvation that God brings to the table isn't like a salvation we understand where it is good and nice and pure, but it is pervasive and huge. It reaches not to those who are in trouble, but to those who are dead and reaches not to a select few, but to more than we could ever comprehend. And he did it for our good, but he also did it, as we just saw, he did it for his, his glory. And oftentimes we're saying, well, that's, that's narcissistic that God did this for his glory, right? That sounds unloving. But let me ask you, how many people have seen Schindler's List in here? Okay, the majority of you. Who's the main character in Schindler's List? I'll give you a hint. His name's in the title, okay? It's Schindler. How many people... When you finished that movie, had to sit you down and say, now here's the deal. Schindler was the main character. How many of us needed to be taught that? None of us. But here's a question. How many Schindlers were there? One. How many Jews were there that he saved? Hundreds. But Schindler was the main character. Why? Because the Jews were saved because of him. And that doesn't downgrade the salvation the Jews experienced. It doesn't negate and say that their joy and their elation and their freedom was anything less than it actually was, but instead it takes that freedom, it takes that joy, it takes that salvation, and it positions Schindler as the head to it. And it didn't lessen anything, but it heightened it. And when God saved us, we experienced great salvation, but we also experienced the glory of a God and Savior greater than Schindler. We experienced the salvation of something more than just a momentary fascist regime in history. We experienced the glory of God, which gave us a new identity. One thing I love about Schindler's List is when the Jews get shipped, um, they're supposed to be getting released and they get shipped instead to another concentration camp. And who remembers the first thing the group of women say when they arrive at that concentration camp? But we're Schindler's Jews. You see, their identity to their savior appealed to their reality as humans. And when Jesus saves us, if we are to onboard the train of salvation at this pit stop of the University of Montana, what shapes our thoughts is I'm Jesus's person because I know his glory and I've tasted his salvation and my life isn't about me. It's not, I'm a Jewish banker. I'm a Jewish celebrity. I'm Schindler's Jew. And we are Jesus's people and that shapes 
our identity. We know faithfulness and we know mercy, not because we've read Nicholas Sparks or seen a great story of mercy on TV. We know it because we know God's salvation. And in knowing that salvation, we experience a glory of God, which shapes our lives. And because God's glory is far more compelling than man's glory, we also respond in a different way. My son today, he did a broad jump and he jumped this far and he danced and Sarah and I cheered and I'm a big NFL fan and I go watch the NFL combine where they do their broad jump as full grown men and they're jumping like 12 feet and Owen jumped four feet. There's a different response when someone jumps 12 feet at 240 pounds than my son jumps three feet at 26 pounds. It's natural. How much more is God, the response to God's glory greater than the response to man's glory? And Paul talks about that response in verses, the second part of verse 9 and verse 10 of Romans 15. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol in him. Because we know God's glory in salvation, right? We've talked about it. We just saw that. God's glory comes in him saving his people. But because we know that, we, and we now experience that glory, you can't help but praise God for what he's done. No one had to tell the Jews to be happy. Hey, Schindler just saved you. You should have a raised pulse. Uh, maybe feelings of a giddy sensation deep in your gut, and a general relief of your life being spared. No one had to tell them that. They experienced this salvation. And this is the second point tonight. What shapes our Christian life? The glory of God in salvation, but also the fame of God among the nations. And you see, God's plan was always to be worshipped by people. That was always his plan. It was his plan in the garden. It's his plan in the church age. It's going to be his plan in the new heavens and the new earth. And because God is God and he's the master storyteller, story writer, and history shaper, he will be worshipped like that. He will be worshipped like a people. The end, or by a people. The end is not in doubt. And Paul here shows the vastness of God's salvation. He uses three quotes from the Old Testament, but two of them have really special significance just in terms of the context that he's quoting here. Um, it shows the zealousness of God, the fame of God among the nations. In the first passage, we see in verse 9, um, he's actually citing a psalm of David. This is important to understand. So David was a Jewish king. And this psalm that Paul is going to quote here is actually a psalm that David wrote after he had vanquished all of his enemies. He had been delivered from the Philistines. He had been delivered from the hand of Saul. There were now no more enemies for Israel, and David began to sing of God's greatness to them. And yet, in the middle of this moment, where in the history of Israel, there is no more peace than what David just brought. There is no more greater deliverance to the ethnic nation of Israel than what David had just established. As David was singing his praises to God, God was talking about not only being praised among the Jews, but among the nations. We see this, and actually the, the Greek word for Gentiles, it's, it's ethnos, just ethnicities, just people. 
He'll be praised among the ethnic groups. And so even while God's plan was still only revealed just to the Jews, we see God beginning to foreshadow his zealous plan for something more. His zealous plan to be worshipped among the nations. And the second passage that he quotes in verse 10 is again really important to think on the context of it. It's a quote from a, psalm of, or a song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32:43, And this quote is a song that Moses sang after he, had, uh, he was up on Mount Sinai and God gave him the law and he comes down and he recites the law to the people and they write it down and he says, take the law and seal it and put it away. And the, what the law was, is this was God saying to his people, obey this and you'll be my people. If you are my people, this is how you will act. It was the gateway to God's blessing. It was the doorway to being God's people. And yet again, in this thoroughly Jewish context, God is saying, rejoice, O you nations, in God. You see, God will not only be praised as if it's by accident, but God will be praised because people will respond to God. You see, when it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, that's an imperative it's not saying, hey, if, if God's good, maybe you should rejoice. It's a command to respond to the salvation that God has given us in Jesus Christ. Because Israel received God's salvation, it was true that they would praise him among the nations. But because we have received God's salvations in Jesus Christ, we as believers in this age will glorify Christ among the nations. We will. You're called to. And, and I want to tell you today that God is getting fame in our world today. It seems really weird to talk about God being famous. But it's happening. And that's because people are being converted. And where there are converts to Jesus, the fame of Jesus' name is being proclaimed. And oftentimes we look at our own culture here in America and we become so self-centered um, that we become like really pessimistic about what's happening, Right? You know, just stop and go get on Facebook after this and you'll get really pessimistic really fast. I made the mistake of doing that. I actually unfollowed one of my family members today because every time I looked at his account and it showed up on Facebook, I'm just like, people are dumb. And it, it like ruined my life for like 30 minutes because I'm like, my pride <laughs> perked up and it was bad. Anyway, uh, we think that it's just, it's a sucky time to be a Christian and God's losing and we're so oppressed. And, and that might be true in America. But it will never be true as a whole for God's people. God will not lose. He will be praised among the nations as people respond to his glory in salvation. Let me just give you an example. We support and partner with a church in the Middle East. Um, and I was just talking with their pastor. We were praying for their church and I asked him how we could pray for him. And in this uh, they live in an area which is pretty close to where ISIS is working. Um, they actually say in the state that they're in, ISIS is secretly um, embedding themselves there. In case you don't know anything about ISIS, they don't like Christians. Um, and yet, they have 10 elders at their church, and all 10 of them will be preaching sermons to their church in these next 10 weeks. 10 Christians converted in a hostile culture who will be bearing God's word in a culture that once didn't know Jesus. And additionally to that, this church in a hostile situation is planting three other churches, one in Beirut, 
one across the country, and one in a neighboring state. And so we can look at America and be like, oh my goodness, no one wants to hear the gospel because they'll call me a bigot. And yet, we, and so we think Christianity is losing, but across the globe, Christ is winning because conversion isn't something about culture. Conversion has to do with a great God who is zealous for salvation. To live Christianly means that we no longer live for our own fame or our comfort, but we live for the one who gave, who gave us salvation on the cross. Our life is summed up in the command Paul gives in Romans 10, rejoice, O people, with his people. Rejoice, O nations, with the people of God. To experience God's glory and salvation means that we will live for his name among the nations. This is what Paul meant when he gave this passage in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 20. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So Paul's now going to explain. What is the ministry of reconciliation? That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So what do you do as a Christian? You are an ambassador. And the cool thing is ambassadors go to other nations. I hope that in this midst, we have people who go to other nations and don't just go on a short-term mission, although we love short-term missions, but go there and live there and preach the gospel there and get plugged in with churches there. And actually, next uh, December, we're going to go to a missions conference in Louisville called CrossCon, and I'm excited for that. I'm excited for missionaries to come from this body. But what that also means is that you as a Christian, you are not about your own fame, your own dreams, or your own plans. You are an ambassador for God. Because when we, first, when we understand that first and foremost we are saved by God for God's works, we have a different way of sifting through um, culture's demands and man's dreams, right? If we know we are shaped by the glory of God which saved us, we are then to live for the fame of God's name who saved us, it changes our priorities. And we say, what does it really mean to like live for the fame of God? I, I, we can't comprehend that. But we understand that more deeply than we've ever known. We understand living for the fame of someone else because it happens all the time. If you get a good job, you want people to know where you work. If you feel like you have good fashion, you want people to know who made your clothes, where you bought your clothes, what your clothes tell about you. If you drive a nice car, you want people to know the manufacturer. If you go to a good school, you want people to know your school. If you, if you have a good sports team, you want people to know their mascot. How much more, if we are so aware of the glory of God in our salvation, should we seek to live for his name and his fame in your life on this campus and among the nations? And when the theology of God's salvation leads us to fame showcasing among the nations, we actually give our neighbors and our friends the greatest gift of all, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is where Christianity becomes practical. This is where you see the care that Christianity brings to the world. Because to say you love others, to say you're a good person, to say you really are concerned for the well-being of others, but to do it apart from the gospel is an incomplete love. 
It's to go up to a man dying of cancer and say, here, I brought your Reese's Pieces. I hope you're happy. It doesn't deal with their ultimate problem. But the gospel of God doesn't know such lack because it reaches out to people in fame and glory and tells them of the salvation of God. So the Christian life glorifies God and it serves others. But the good news is, is it's also good for us. Look at what Paul says in verses 12 and 13. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And so, do you guys, have you, any of you guys had intro to philosophy classes yet? I'm making you guys respond a lot with me right now. Okay, a few of you. How many of you guys study Immanuel Kant already? Okay, good. You, you know a little bit. You know this much. Okay. Um, excuse me. So you see, Immanuel Kant came up with this system of ethics. And his ethics system pop quiz is based on what? Duty. Right? You have this duty to do things. So that means if you see an old lady who needs help crossing a street, you, as a stronger, healthier individual, have a duty to society to go and help her. And that duty isn't based on her turning around and saying, here's a dollar, and, and giving you a grandma hug and a thank you. That duty isn't even based on you saying, this is going to allow me to practice servanthood and is going to increase my position in society. In fact, Kant says that if you were to do that action and you feel some reward from that duty you just did that's of any sort of personal merit, you're probably living in the wrong way. And while it's true that we don't act and worship God merely because it's good for us, right? We learn we, we act and think and do because God is glorious. While it's true that that doesn't happen as the primary motivation, the gospel is so good and so big and so glorious that we cannot disassociate God's glory from our good. Our good is wrapped up in God's glory. That's the best for everyone. And here Paul quotes Isaiah and he says, the, the root of Jesse, that's Jesus, the root of Jesse will come and the Gentiles will hope in him and the nations will hope in him. And you know what? Every person on this world has a hope which ends in Jesus. The problem is not everyone finds Jesus as that hope. They seek to find hope for salvation and joy and satisfaction in other things. The things that Paul's praying for here, for peace and joy and hope, they look for that in things which are not Jesus. But that hope that we have isn't because we've decided to be a hopeful people. That hope we have is because all of us need that hope. And for those who see Jesus rightly and respond to the glory of God as proclaimed through his fame in salvation, we have a hope which is so big that no matter hard, how hard it might be to live for God's glory, no matter how ostracizing it might be to live for his fame, we have a hope which will not be put to shame. Again, Paul, just chapters earlier, says this, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. See, it is exactly this hope a hope of having 
something which won't fail, a salvation which won't go away, a life in the immediate presence of a good and glorious God that fuels our Christian life. You see, if you don't have a gospel hope, you're going to cave to culture. And who cares if you cave to culture? Because that's just a sighting of what's going on in your soul. If you serve culture, if you worship culture, you're not worshiping God. But to live a life in the presence of a Christian hope will endure you unto eternity. And this is the beauty of the gospel, for how can the world kill what has already died and rose again? How can the world steal that which is permanently hidden in Christ? How can they maim a prize which is not yet fully given? How can they silence a message which is already being proclaimed by rocks and hills? How can they undo a salvation which has already be, uh, been accomplished? You see, you as believers have a hope in your life which is good for the glory of God which is good for the nations who hear it, but it's good for you, for there is no other name given among men by which you must be saved from the state man has been in since you were born. And this is the last point. What drives the Christian life? It's the good of man through the gospel of hope. The gospel is about God. The gospel is about serving others. But the gospel is about your good. In my young life still, I can honestly tell you, and I've experienced a lot for being young. You guys will experience a lot in your young age. There's nothing better than following Jesus. There's nothing better than the hope of the gospel. Not what little human success I've experienced. Not sex, not relationships, not families, not kids, not owning a house, not going to school, not getting a master's degree, not voting, not living in America, not having a dog, which I had momentarily, and then it puked on my carpet. Thank you, Samantha. None of that brought me the joy that the hope of the gospel has brought me. You see, we should be led to resist culture and live differently because we see the glory of God in his theological gospel. We don't see people as being good or bad or as being privileged or unprivileged. We see people as being lost and saved by Jesus, saved by a good savior. And we see Christ dying for our sins and freeing us and then empowering us to live as promoters of his fame. And we know that that is for our ultimate good, for the world's good, and for the glory of God. But how do we receive this hope? Paul makes it very clear, as he has in this whole book. Look at verse 13. May the God of hope fill you all with joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. You see, all of us will have varying degrees of experiencing God's glory at certain parts in your life. Some days you'll wake up and you'll be God is so good. He's given me this clear picture of the gospel. My devotions are dripping with just goodness. I want to Instagram everything. And, and then there'll be days where you live in this darkness of your soul. But the hope that we have isn't tied to the emotions we experience, but to the object of belief. And if you want a hope which endures past this world, if you want a joy and a peace which cannot be crippled by hostile armies 
or secular cultures believe in Jesus. See, people might be able to remove our symbols or silence our voices or even kill our people, but our world will never be rid of the fame of God because we are God's people living for God's glory. Christianity will not endure because it compromises with culture. Christianity will endure. People will be saved and God will be glorified because the gospel has already done these things. Let that shape your life. Let that shape your thoughts. Let that cause you to engage culture, not in angry hatred or Twitter rants, but in love and compassion with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that, uh, that this is true and good for us. Um, I don't know a better prayer to pray over this group of college students than what Paul had already prayed. Lord, if it were only true that you answered this prayer um, perfectly in us right now with bold power, um, what would we not be able to do for your name? But the irony is that you've already answered that prayer if we are Christians. You've already given us that hope. You've filled us with that joy. You've provided us that peace. And so, Lord, allow us to live lives shaped by your glory and salvation, concerned for others and for the fame of your name, and one that's fully aware of the goodness you bring us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in closing, may the God of hope fill our hearts with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may abound in hope. Amen.